Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to be discussing what's going on with my hives and also a book review. Um, Last week I also did a book review and that's something that I'm going to try and keep going. During these days of COVID-19, many of us are working from home and even those of us who worked from home before, like myself, um, our schedules have changed. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is get through all my bee books that I've used as references or um, I've been meaning to get to and it feels like this is a good time to do it. So first things first, I'd like to do a couple of homestead updates like I always do. Um, I mentioned previously that right when the shelter in place order went into effect, uh, a lot of people that I know were like, Gemma, you keep chickens. Do you have eggs? I can't find eggs anywhere. And so I was happy to um, give or sell eggs to um, like friends and neighbors and, and such until I actually ran out. And um, at the time I ran out, my girls in you know, annoyance of the weather, I'm assuming, decided that they were going to cut back on laying. So for a while there, people would be sending me messages asking for eggs and I had to turn them away and I felt terrible. Well, now I have the opposite (laughs) and my fridge was actually packed full up until yesterday when I sold two dozen eggs. I have another dozen going out today and I'll probably be dropping off um, a dozen or two with some friends uh, next week. So um (laughs) It kind of, this is the weird thing about not having a huge amount of chickens is you just, you can't really ever anticipate what your supply is going to be like. So um, I try not to make promises that I can't keep. Um, I also, you know, sort of speaking about the pandemic and how it's affecting sort of daily life. Um, I had my first tele appointment um, and I, it was with, um, It was with my psychiatrist, you know, I check in with him every six months because I'm on an antidepressant and you need to be monitored. And it was really easy. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I didn't have to download any new software. So if anyone out there has had like, I don't know, anxiety about maybe scheduling a tele-appointment with a healthcare professional, or maybe you just don't want to download anything else on your computer, because that's what I was worried about. I didn't want to have to get like all new software. Um or programs or whatever that I wasn't familiar with, there are methods where you don't have to, like this, where you get emailed a link, you click on it, it takes you to a website, and then that's it. Um, you don't have to give them any personal information besides your name, It's it was really convenient. So um, maybe if any of you are considering doing tele-appointments, I would recommend going ahead. Um, I have um, struggled a little bit in the last two weeks, and again, um, I'm about to talk about like mental health issues. So if you want to just skip ahead a couple of minutes, if you don't want to hear that, or if it might be triggering or upsetting for you in some way, then just jump ahead like a couple of minutes. Uh, It's nothing really major. Just um, I've had some depressive episodes. I've had like increased moodiness. And I I think maybe what it is, is um, I feel like I'm okay most days, but I think underneath I actually do have quite a lot of anxiety about how everything is affecting my family and then the the greater kind of world as a whole you know like people are losing their jobs there's no real job security anymore um 
you know, my brother works in healthcare. And so I worry about his exposure and, you know, my mother is older and and she lives with my brother. So I worry about that. And then I have, you know, my in-laws are older again and they're in Florida, which hasn't done a great job of taking responsible measures. And I know that my mother-in-law doesn't really think that this is anything that serious. So I worry about them. Although thankfully they're kind of home bodies anyway. So um, hopefully they're limiting their exposure. And my father-in-law is being very serious about um, self-isolation and protective methods. But yeah, I've had some struggles. Um, I've had some tears and moodiness. And um, I've been putting off scheduling a teletherapy appointment, but I think I'm going to have to. And I just wanted to sort of talk about it because I know I've mentioned before that um, we're never going to get over the stigma of mental illness until some of us who are able to can talk about it openly so that um, other people feel empowered to do the same. So yeah, it's been a struggle. If any of you are struggling, I understand, I sympathize. Um, Please take care of yourselves. Uh, There are people who love you and care about you. Um, And uh, you can always shoot me an email sometime. I'm always happy to talk to my listeners I mean I'm not a therapist but if you just want to vent a little bit you know send me send me an email I'm around in positive news uh it's baby season here on the homestead and for most people what this means is uh farm animals it means little fluffy chicks and ducklings and sweet little piglets and baby lambs and goats and all those kind of fun things which I hope will be a part of my life one day but right now on this homestead what it means is baby reptiles. So as many of you might remember I breed pink tongue skinks which is a kind of Australian lizard. Um, It's semi-arboreal, it's relatively small uh, for a lizard, it's maybe two foot and most of that's tail. In fact scratch that it's probably a foot and most of that's tail. Um, and I love them. They are docile, they're sweet natured, they um, are large enough to be handled, but they also make a beautiful kind of look at pet. Um, and just, they're just absolutely wonderful. And I fell in love with them the minute I brought one home. And this is my third litter, which kind of blows my mind. And even more exciting is that my female who gave birth, uh, Europa is her name, She is one of the first babies I ever produced here. She was born in 2018. um, And sadly, her mother passed away uh, from complications after birth, um, not long after she blessed me with 25 babies. And um, I miss her very much. She was a wonderful skink. She was an incredible breeder. And she, she was my first ever... Uh, pink tongue and she just changed everything for me so having Europa reach an age where she can have her first litter was very emotional Um, she had 24 feisty active babies Uh, I didn't find any runts this time so fingers crossed this means they're all viable sadly with reptiles um the babies can be born and everything can seem great for two to three weeks and then suddenly you can start losing them which is actually what happened with my 2019 litter where they came out kind of runty and um they I, they just started dropping like flies after about three to four weeks old and I ended up with about half of the original babies surviving and the ones that have survived um are beautiful skinks absolutely gorgeous but they are a little smaller than the standards so you can kind of see that and obviously I won't be repeating that pairing but anyway 
Mama did great. I basically woke up to a tank full of little tiny striped babies running around. And since then, Mama's been separated from the babies and she is being given food every day to make sure she um, has the resources that she needs. But honestly, uh, she still weighs over 100 grams after giving birth, which is excellent. So I'm really pleased with how she looks. I'm pleased with her recovery. Uh, I am a little nervous because I lost her mother after her mother gave birth so I am kind of watching her like a hawk but um things are going really really well I already have a wait list of people interested in the babies and I have a second litter on the way I have a last year's mama uh Pandora I paired her up with a different male and um she is doing a lot better than she did previously she weighs more she is uh bigger than uh how she was last time and she just seems I don't know, I have a better feeling about this one. So we'll see what happens. And then because Pandora's been bred two years in a row, Pandora will be taking next breeding season off. Um, now that I'm sort of in my third year of breeding, I'm very aware of the fact that I don't want to be shortening my girls' lifespans by just making them pump out babies. And it's a little complicated because I do keep them in breeding pairs. Um, they seem to do very well with a companion, but it's best for everyone if uh, they get a break every, I'm probably going to do every two years or every year, depending on recovery, every other year, I should say. So um, we'll see what happens, but she's definitely taking next season off from breeding. She'll have her own tank and um, her her mate will be by himself as well. And um, we'll see what, what happens then. But yeah, that was really exciting. I'm really happy to be able to share it with all of you. And I know some of you saw the pictures online and I know reptiles aren't everyone's thing and that's okay, but that is part of what I do here. It's part of my homestead. It's part of my income. So I wanted to share it with all of you. In other news, um, if you follow me on Instagram, you've already seen that sadly my weak hive, the one that had Queen Morrigan, it died. And um, I was really upset about it um, because I did try, but you know, I can't control the weather sadly. And it was this cold snap that we had that lasted about seven to 10 days that I'm pretty sure is what finally killed them. So I'm going to do my usual formatting where um, I have referenced my beekeeping journal and I'm going to break it down by the days I went out, what I saw and so on. So on Sunday, April 19th, it was about 54 degrees Fahrenheit, about 2 p.m. overcast with a moderate wind. In hive number one, which is Queen Caredwin, that's my uh, fifth generation Ohio queen, I found queen, brood and eggs. The queen had moved into the middle box, which is a deep, and there was brood in both the bottom and the middle box. This is my biggest population hive. It's just bustling with bees. I was really delighted to see that they actually started some wax production. Um, I thought it was too early because we're not really in a proper nectar flow, but they were producing some wax and actually they were producing um, some burr comb. So I kind of had to go through and remove that. And as a reminder for anyone who's listening who is new to beekeeping, burr comb is basically any kind of wax comb that is built uh, off a frame or off an area where you want to see it. So um, in this case, they were building burr comb on the edges of the um, the frames or on the tops of the frames 
or on one part, like actually on the side of the box. So this is one of the supers that I made with my neighbor. And I think the measurements are very slightly off so that it's a little bit bigger than the regulation B space. And so the Bs are like, well, we have to fill this in. So I'm probably gonna be have to manage this community um, for Burkhome. But if you catch it early, you can prevent it from being, you know, super destructive. Um, I had a plastic drone frame in this hive, which I was using as a pest management solution. So uh, it's like a frame with larger cells so that when you put it in the colony, the um, bees will make basically all drone comb. And then the female comes in, She, uh, sorry, the female, the queen comes in She's like, oh, these are drone combs. And she just fills it with drones. And the idea is that because mites will be able to breed more in a drone comb, they're attracted to it. So you go in once the majority of those cells are capped, then you freeze it. And you can either put it back in the hive for them to clean up or I give it to my bees and they eat the drones and then I put it back. Um, and I'd left a frame of this in going into full and they took <laughs> they got rid of any drones that were in there and they started packing it full of honey um and so I felt like I couldn't remove it because it had just incredible honey stores on it but I finally got to the point where they've eaten all the honey out of it so I took it out because yes I will be using it again for management but at this period of time they were not producing drones it was it's too early in the season um, and then after this inspection, I put the wrap back on the hive wrap because we're still having cold days. So I went into hive number two, which is Queen Marka. Uh, she's from the South. She's the only surviving queen of the two that I bought originally as part of nucleus colonies. I found queen, I found brood. I actually couldn't see eggs due to the light at this time of day, but I'm pretty sure they're there based on the pattern that I could see on the frames. The queen was in the upper box with the brood. Um, the brood was beautiful. Her pattern is fantastic. She has really been laying like a little champ in there. I saw a noticeable increase in population. They are active, they are foraging. And this is the hive that still has the candy board on because they're still eating the fondant. So I left it with them. And then I put the wrap back on. And then we come to my weak hive, number three, which was Queen Morrigan. This is the queen that they raised themselves. And I had already suspected that the colony had died. And uh, this happened to be the first day that I could actually safely open them up. And I found them clustered in the top box and they were all dead. And all the brood was dead as well. And the minute I looked at it, I could immediately see what had happened. And there just weren't enough bees. Uh, they couldn't cluster successfully. They couldn't keep the brood warm and they couldn't keep themselves warm. There were some that were dead, stuck in the cells, which is an indication that they were looking for food. It's really sad. Their little butts just are sticking out. They've gone like face first in that cell looking for anything to eat and they starved. But the majority of the bees were still in that tiny cluster. Um, so what I ended up doing is I actually uh, took the frames out and I knocked all of the bees into a container and then spread them into a thin layer, which didn't take much because like I said, there's not a lot of them. And I meticulously looked for the body of the queen because I wanted to keep her. I actually have an insect collection 
and I wanted to keep her and I couldn't find her. So the only thing I can guess is that maybe she died early on and they pushed her body out of the hive and then something ate it. I don't know, but I couldn't find her anywhere, um, sadly, so I didn't get a chance to preserve her body. I do wonder if I'd put the candy board back on, whether this might have helped them survive, but honestly, the amount of bees there were, I just don't think they had enough population. Um, You might remember that I had said that I took two frames of brood from my strong hive and I'd put them in this hive and the hopes was that because I chose brood that was mostly capped that they would have a chance to emerge and therefore increase the population well sadly the cold spell hit and I think some of them died in their cells and then the rest just emerged but were too young and there just wasn't enough and they died um So what I did is I ended up uh, disposing of the dead bees. I actually gave them to my chickens to eat. And um, then I went through all the frames and I sorted them into two boxes. And one was a box of honey frames. Uh, It was a mix of capped and uncapped honey. Um, And I wrapped those and I froze them in case of disease because I knew I wanted to feed the honey back, but I wanted to be safe. And then the other box was a deep box with uh, built up frames. So the frames had wax on them they will be great for future hives or to use as a swarm law and they are um, a resource that is worth having and then on tuesday april 21st i received an email from queen Wright colonies that my package of bees had shipped so that was very exciting it also came with a really good reminder in the email about calling my post office and asking them to give me a call to pick up the package so it wasn't sitting on the usps truck all day And so I decided to uh, take five frames of honey out of the freezer to thaw. I prepared leftover fondant and I made sure all my equipment was ready because we were still having cold weather and I knew these bees were going to be hungry because it's a package of bees. And I couldn't give them sugar syrup because it's not warm enough. So I needed to make sure they had things they could actually use. So Wednesday, April 22nd, it's a cold day. It was 30 to low 40 Fahrenheit. And we actually had some brief snow flurries, although thankfully none of it stuck. I get a phone call and I go and pick up my bee package at 12.30 and it actually looked pretty good. The bees were clearly cool, but they were active and I couldn't see a lot of dead bees. So I went out and I prepared the hive and I got a deep box and I filled it with five frames of honey and five of the frames that had the wax buildup on it. So they were all ready to go. And the way I oriented things is I put two built up frames in the middle so that when the queen was released, she would immediately have cells she could lay in. And then next to those, I put the open nectar with mixed capped honey so that there's food right next to them. And then on the outer edges, I put the fully capped honey. So I get the package home. Um, I take, open it up. I take the, sh- the can of sugar syrup out and I take out the queen cage and I peek in and she is clearly alive. And based on how the bees were acting, they looked like they were already accepting her and I base this on the fact that there were a relatively strong cluster of bees around them and they weren't biting at the 
cage. They weren't trying to stink her. They were just sort of attending to her and I could gently brush them off with my finger. So that's a very good sign. So I ended up taking her cage and it had a cork in it and I very carefully removed the cork and then put a piece of fondant in there um, so that she's still in there and the bees are going to have to eat that fondant to get her out. And then I wedged her between those two frames of drawn out comb and I dumped some bees on top. Then what I did is I put a candy board over the top with fondant and a little pollen supplement. I placed the inner cover and then I put an empty deep box on top. I then took the package, turned it so that the main base where the uh, can had been removed was facing down over the inner cover and I shook some of the bees out and then I rested the package so that the rest of the bees could come out when they were ready, put the top cover back on, put the hive wrap on and just sort of let them come out when they were ready and I did this because I had seen some stuff online that indicated that when you are installing a package of bees in cold weather this is a easier method for the bees Um, when you shake them so aggressively to get them all out it's harder on them they can like fly around everywhere and not be able to make it back to the hive and this way they are insulated from the cold as much as possible and from the wind and can make their way down. So I actually did go back out in the evening around six o'clock and I just peeked in and the majority of the bees had left the package and were in the hive. Um, And something I thought was interesting is the hive had a very particular sound to it. So it was much noisier than um, queen right colonies, colonies that have their queen, have accepted her and are secure with her. There was a lot of buzzing and activity and kind of I almost want to say upset to them um, because even though some of the bees had accepted the queen they're not queen right yet the whole colony had not accepted her yet so I was happy to see though that they were moving down and I made a to-do list to check the queen in four days and if she hadn't been released I would release her So we come to Saturday, April 25th. It was a warm day, 55 to 58 degrees Fahrenheit. It was sunny. There was a light breeze. It was honestly beautiful weather. And I went out around noon. Um, So I went to hive number one and um, there were eggs, queen eggs and brood. The queen was in the middle box. The population is still exploding on this hive. It's absolutely fantastic. Lots of eggs and young brood in all stages it was just wonderful and some drones so that was nice to see that they feel strong enough that they're producing the boys a little more burr comb that I had to clean up a little more wax build up which is great this is what I want to see no indication of swarming which is my biggest concern with this colony because it's so huge and if things continue and we don't have more really awful cold weather, I am optimistic that I can make a nucleus colony out of this hive uh, soon. And I did put the wrap back on because our nights are cold. So hive number two, I found the queen, eggs and brood. The buildup is lovely. There's a noticeable population increase. There's no signs of swarming. I had been presuming that I might not be able to harvest honey from this hive because it was my smallest hive going into winter and although it came out of winter pretty strong I wasn't sure but I'm cautiously optimistic that I could get a little honey 
harvest from them. So fingers crossed. I'm going to have to monitor them for more space. I'd really like to get another deep box on them filled with brood before the full nectar flow because I just think... Um, I think that would be better in terms of their health as a colony and even this hive has some drone cells so that's great they obviously feel like they're uh doing well and i put the candy ball back on because they're still eating the fondant and then i put the wrap back on so hive number three this is the one with my new saskatraz hybrid queen bee and i went looking for the queen but the first thing i found were frames full of eggs. So I knew that she was out. I did double check because why not? The cage had to come out anyway. They had helped her be free of the cage and she had set to work immediately. Um, there were at least three frames full of beautiful eggs, perfectly laid in the center of each cell. So it was definitely the queen laying them. And I actually found her, but she's still quite quick, uh, maybe because she's recently mated uh, but she was quite quick. She's also shy. So she kept on trying to run away from me and I couldn't get a good picture. And honestly, I didn't try that hard because I didn't want to stress her out. You know, it's still very early days for this colony. When I had seen her in the cage the first day, I thought that she looked kind of small, but actually getting to see her on the frame, she is bigger than I thought, which is a good sign because there are studies that show that bigger queens tend to be better mated and do well, do kind of better overall. An interesting thing in this colony is I noticed that the girls were making multiple queen cells and it's not uncommon to see queen cells, it, you know, they're, they're kind of practice it, but um, it did I don't know, it concerned me a little bit in the sense that are they thinking that if they get enough queen cells, they're going to try and get rid of their queen and raise their own? I mean, it's always a possibility. But this hive, the noise of the hive and the way it's functioning has really settled down into what I would expect to hear from a queen right colony. So fingers crossed the queen cells is just them building wax and practicing. I did break down some of the queen cells, but I left maybe one or two um, and I'll just keep a close eye on them. The foragers are already active. They're bringing in pollen and I ended up uh, putting a deep box with eight built up frames and two new ones. So they'll have to draw wax on those on top of their existing deep box. And then I put the candy ball back on and the wrap on. And that's kind of where I am with my hives. So I felt like the package installation overall went really, really well. I'm happy that they let the queen out themselves. I'm happy with her laying pattern. I am really optimistic that things are going to go well with them. And I'm excited to see what those Saskatraz genetics are going to bring to my apiary because you might remember when I talked about Saskatraz bees that they've been bred for um, mite resistant um, behaviors and also um, they tend to overwinter very well. Uh, so fingers crossed. I have not named her yet. Uh, suggestions are welcome. I, as you know, I have like a Celtic goddess theme with my other queen bees because um, I'm British and it's kind of my like pagan heritage. And I just, I really love earth religions in general. So I was really attracted to the idea of um, kind of paying respect to that part of my history with these names. So I originally was thinking, well, 
she's from she's a Saskatchewan uh origin B so I would look up um Saskatchewan uh, myths and religions but they're all first nation they're all um like aboriginal people and so I felt I didn't feel comfortable using their deities because that's not I have no connection to that history I have no connection to those faiths it felt like kind of icky to um just kind of pick and choose what I wanted from their religion so I left that and I'm either going to find like a Celtic deity name who is like a goddess of winter because this is kind of meant to be a strong overwintering bee or I might break the pattern and I'll just completely come up with a random name that is somehow vaguely Canadian or appropriate for the work that went into producing this um, like special mite resistant bee. So watch this space. If you have any suggestions, let me know. Always love to hear them. Okay, so the next part of this episode is going to be about a book that I read and I loved. And I really wanted to review it because it is um, it is a fictional book and it's a wonderful story. So even if you are listening to me because you're more into the homesteading side of things and not so much the bees, I think you'll still really enjoy it because it's such a wonderful story. And then also, if you are here because you love beekeeping, I think you'll like this book because it's so uh, imaginative. It deals with um, aspects of the hive that is uh, just really fascinating. Um, And so this book is called The Bees by Laleen Paul. It's a fictional book that was published in 2014. It received critical acclaim and it's been classified as everything from suspense to fantasy and even dystopian fiction. So about the author, which I'm just going to quote directly from the book, Laleen Poole studied English at Oxford, screenwriting in Los Angeles and theatre in London. She lives in England with her husband, photographer Adrian Peacock and their three children. So in 2018, I actually saw mentions of this book everywhere. Uh, People were recommending it on online forums and groups. I saw it on bookshelves at stores like Target. And then Amazon recommended it to me when I would log in. And so what I did is I put it on my wish list and completely forgot about it. And then someone bought it for me for, I want to say Christmas or a birthday, because as my family and friends know if it has anything to do with bees it's basically a perfect gift for me and I was interested by the blurb on the back of the book but I kind of set it down and I never got around to reading it but when the shelter in place order went in and I was looking at the fiction books I had to read this immediately caught my eye so I actually have um, worked on a really detailed review of this book because the author clearly read up on um, how hives are structured, some elements of beekeeping, um, and then the biology of bees. And so I really wanted to talk in detail about the parts of the book that affected me as a beekeeper that I just thought were beautiful imaginings of things that I see when I go in a hive. And also I wanted to talk about where she steps away from biology. So a lot of people recommend this book and they say things like, wow, I never knew that beehives work this way. Or wow, I'm not a beekeeper, but um, I think I know how hives work now. And this is amazing. And you kind of do, but she does make some key 
I don't want to say mistakes because they were clear plot device choices where she steps away from the biology of the honeybee. And so I kind of wanted to point those out as well. But before I go into that really detailed review, because it's going to have, you know, I'm going to share excerpts from the book. So if you haven't read it and you don't want to be spoiled in any way whatsoever, I'm just going to share a quick summary of the book that doesn't give anything away. So this is the safe summary of the book. The Bees follows the life of Flora 717. She's a sanitation worker in an anthropomorphized hive that is arranged in a rigid case system with the flora cased of bees being firmly on the bottom. The queen is their holy mother who spreads her divine love throughout the hive and whose fertility is the seat of her holy power. Her priestesses, called the Melissae, enforce the divine law of the hive. They're of the caste called sage, and they appear to have a, like advanced communicative skills and religious powers. The fertility police jealously guard the queen's divine right as the only seat of fertility, searching out and executing any worker bee who dares sin by laying eggs, while also examining newly hatched bees for signs of difference or abnormality. Each case works a predetermined task in support of the hive as a whole. So Flora, um, she's a sanitation worker, she would be a cleaning bee. But even for a Flora, she is considered particularly ugly and large when she emerges. And she has the ability to speak, which is highly unusual for her case. But she's spared from death by the ever watchful fertility police by a sage who instead puts her to work producing flow, which is royal jelly, in the nursery. This single act places Flora 717 on a path she could have never anticipated until she finds herself beginning to question everything she thought she knew about the hive and the holy mother. Although not always biologically accurate, this book is beautifully written and I highly recommend it. Okay, now, if you're okay listening to me give a completely detailed rundown on the story, including excerpts from this book, you can continue now. But if you don't want to hear that, thank you so much for listening. Um, You can turn off the podcast now so you don't hear any spoilers. Please feel free to reach out to me on social media and you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. Thank you for listening. If you're still here you are prepared to hear spoilers. Okay, so let's continue. When I first read the blurb for this book, it was clear that Flora 717 was going to become a laying worker. I mean, that's just obvious. And as I started reading, I actually began to suspect that she would produce a daughter, which as a beekeeper kind of annoyed me because it's biologically impossible. Worker bees can sometimes lay eggs if they are queen, if the hive is queenless and broodless, but that egg will always turn into a drone because the egg is unfertilized and unfertilized eggs always become drones. There is no mechanism in which a worker bee can develop a fully reproductive tract go out and mate and have female eggs. They just can't. Queen bees are the only bee in a hive that has a fully functional reproductive system. So knowing this, early in the book, I admit that I was getting a little exasperated with kind of feeling like I knew what was coming. Um, And so with that in mind, I also was a little edgy about the author's choice of creating a case system for the bees. Because, 
you know, worker bees will perform all the duties in a hive throughout her entire life, except for reproduction. So a new bee emerges, they work in the nursery as a nurse bee, they do produce royal jelly, and then as they age, they get different jobs in the hive until eventually they become a forager. Um, But by the time I finished the book, I realised that the choice to make the case system was not just for giving it more of an anthropomorphic feel and to give um, more structure to the religious system that this hive operates under, but also because it makes it stand out that by the end of the book, Flora lived the life of your average worker bee. Flora emerges, works in the nursery, does sanitation work, she produces wax, she helps, she eventually becomes a florager, she helps with um, reducing nectar into honey, she, you know, she is the archetypical worker bee, aside from the very ending, which I'll wait to talk about. But that said, I also was kind of charmed by the way that the author decided the case system would be named. So, each of the bees in their own rank are named after uh, various flowers. And it seems like the flowers that are um, most beloved of pollinators, such as sage, are one of the highest case. So all the sage cased bees in this hive are priestesses. And then you have the guards of the hives, which are thistles, because thistles are great pollinators, but they're pointy, so they're protective. And then we had the nursery matrons, which are teasels, which is another good pollinator plant. And then we had some of the foragers, which are named things like clover and lily, whereas the lowly sanitation workers are just flora, aka flowers as a whole. They're not considered special enough to have their own flower. And I don't know, the whole system is just, I thought it was really imaginative. I loved the idea. I, I honestly thought it was, um, it was just beautiful. And I, it's just incredible that anyone would think of that. Another sort of early plot point that kind of annoyed me a bit was our introduction to drones who are literally worshipped for their maleness. Uh, worship to your maleness, the hardworking bees cry, while the fat and pampered drones preen and overeat and make lewd comments. And I immediately dislike them, which is what the author intends. But I also kind of hated this idea that the worker bees, all the females of the hive are submissive to the drones they have to groom them they have to bring them whatever they ask for they get treated kind of poorly um because a hive doesn't worship males um they're the first to go when times get hard and they can't overindulge on honey like they do in the book because they rely on their sisters to actually directly feed them and I also just find it odd that in this structure that she creates where The workers are um, obviously sterile, but also uh, she kind of loops in this idea of them kind of prizing their virginity. And I don't see how a group of females that prize virginity would be at all interested in a bunch of like rowdy, lewd males. But as I read further into the book, um, I did grow increasingly charmed and kind of enchanted by the author's description of the hive and its inner workings, as well as Flora's unique journey. So we learn things like all bees receive communications through the comb. 
they access it to learn where various areas of the hive are located, such as the nursery or the treasury, which is where honey is stored. And on the same vein, the bees themselves communicate with their antennae. So in... Um, we find out early on that the sage, the priestesses, can actually use theirs to read the mind and the souls of the other bees. And so with time, Flora learns how to, she calls it locking them so that her secrets cannot be extracted. So Flora 717 emerges uh, as a new bee in the nursery and she is led by a sage who takes interest in her due to her size to a different part of the nursery where she learns to produce flow, which is the term the author uses for royal jelly for the larva. And it's insinuated that uh, relatively early on here that there are issues with the forage around the hive. And because of this, because times are a little more uh, difficult, Flora, who is, you know, the lowliest of low, is actually being allowed to feed the babies because they need all the resources. And if she can produce flow, then they're going to use her. Perhaps because of her exceptionally large size, Flora produces um, a very large amount of flow and she's actually kept working in the nursery because of this for some time. While she's here, she witnesses the fertility police sniffing out a drone that they suspect was laid by a worker. And Flora is told to execute this young grub. And she can't, she just can't do it. It's too much for her to kill anything. And so the sage wipes her mind of her previous knowledge all this time that she's spent feeding in the nurseries. And she is woken up in the sanitation quarters with her fellow flora and she even loses the ability to speak for a certain period of time but this wiping of her memories doesn't take and flora's memories start to return to her and as they return so does some of her confidence and flora finds herself led by the enticing scent of freshly harvested nectar to the fanning hall and i really really love the way this was described so from the book And then as the two tall double doors in the middle of the passageway swung open to admit them, her soul filled with joy. Waves of raw floral fragrance billowed out on warm air. Flora entered the sacred refinery of the fanning hall and beheld the genius of her people. So it's here that she learns how nectar that's been harvested is turned into honey. And the process described in the book is largely biologically accurate, but with the religious overtones that have already been established. So the cells where they would put the nectar are called chalices, and the air as the bees work is filled with what they call the holy cord, which is kind of a harmonious working sound that helps bind all the bees together and then the bees fan over the chalices to reduce the water content in the nectar until it can be stored as honey which is you know that's basically what happens sadly for flora these precious moments in the fanning hall are interrupted by some very greedy drones who force their way in gorge on all the precious honey and the many days hard work while their sisters you know, panic and and beg them not to take from them. And then once they've glutted themselves, they demand the sisters groom them. And it's here that Flora, she kind of gets sucked up in this whole uh, entourage of uh, maleness. And she learns that drones only have one mission in life, and that's to mate with foreign princesses, as they call them. So 
when they're all sitting around together, they spend all their time boasting of their maleness and the size of what they call their drone wood, which is both imaginative and disgusting. (laughs) And Flora meets a particularly cynical and rather small drone called Sir Linden. So all the drones have Sir before their name because they're oh so important, don't you know? And Sir Lyndon is a character that you want to note because he's going to play a very important part in Flora's story as we move through the book. So I will admit that it was pretty fun to read about these drones boasting about this foreign princess they're going to mate with and then how they're going to return with this foreign princess to live spoiled lives in huge golden palaces when as a beekeeper we all know the truth that when that drone mates with a princess or a virgin queen he's going to die but the drones don't know that and I thought that was interesting. So not long after this encounter with all the drones Flora becomes fascinated by the hive's landing board. And this is something that we see with Flora. Um, She is a very inquisitive bee. She seems to be more interested in the world around her than some of her sisters. And so she's drawn to this landing board and the sense coming in from the outside world. And particularly, she is attracted to the brave foragers who fly out every day in search of pollen and nectar for the hive's treasury. Now, sanitation bees, remember of which flora is one, they're not allowed to forage because they are considered um, unclean and have no taste. And in fact, it's quickly made apparent that the poor flora cased aren't allowed to really do anything but the lowliest cleaning jobs. There's a point in the book where Flora 717 chants Holy Writ, which is knowledge that all the bees have from the minute of their birth. And this section that she chants is as follows. A flora may not make wax, for she is unclean, nor propolis, for she is clumsy, nor ever may she forage, for she has no taste, but only may she serve her hive by cleaning, and all may command her labours. But Flora 717 is an unusually clever bee, and she quickly notes that a very small group of sanitation workers are permitted to fly out from the hive in order to remove corpses, and other like larger waste. And so Flora notices the dead body of one of her many sisters and she picks it up and she heads straight to the landing board. And it's here that she encounters a forager called Lily 500. And I really, really loved how this forager is described in the book because as a forager, she's an older bee and she's showing signs of wear. So this is true that bees, their wings start to degrade, they develop you know, potentially some more kind of wounds to them as they continue to forage because it's very hard work. And a lot of foraging bees will actually die because one day they're just too old and weak or their wings are too tattered to make it back to the hive. And when Flora sees these older workers, she sees all the ragged winds and she sees the scars of age, but she finds them beautiful. So when she looks at Lily 500, This is one of the descriptions. Her nectar-scented voice was hoarse. Her bright, ragged wings told her age, but she radiated energy like a tiny sun. So after this encounter, Flora goes on her flight and she has a great time. She's like zooming around. She's experiencing the wind and the smells of the um, orchard where their hive is. And then she returns to the hive to find that they are under attack from a wasp. And as the bees uh, gather to defend their hive, 
Flora accesses the hive mind, which is kind of the collective knowledge of the colony. And I wonder if the author was sort of hinting at a genetic memory thing here, which is basically the intrinsic instinct of the hive as a supraorganism. And it assists Flora in how to attack the wasp in order to succeed. And because of that, it makes it possible for her sisters to surround it and then basically cook it to death, which is a real way in which bees do kill predators that are too large for them to just kind of sting and remove. So I really, really loved this part of the story because it's it's one of those things that not everyone knows about bees. And I loved that the author had done her research and knew that this was something and that it's something incredible. And so she shared it. Now, by holy law of the hive, any bee who channels the hive mind during crisis must be brought to meet the queen. So in this world, the bees never get to see their holy mother. Instead, they attend what's called daily devotion, where the holy mother's love, which I read as pheromones, basically washes through the hive and trances all the bees and unites them together. It's their balm, their prayer and their inspiration. It is the greatest form of love. So now we have ugly, overlarge flora of the lowest caste brought to the ladies in waiting of the queen who basically say, oh my goodness, you're so dirty and like clean her up as best they can. It's kind of a cute passage where they're like using propolis to style her fur and all this kind of stuff. Now, before she meets the queen, they take her to the queen's library. And we find out that while the rest of the hive attends the devotions that I just mentioned, the queen's ladies maintain the stories of sense, which are key memories of the hive that have to be remembered and maintained for the health of the colony. There are five in total, the honey flow, the kindness, the visitation, expiation, and the golden leaf. And all these memories are considered sacred and only the ladies in waiting and the holy sage case are allowed to read them. Now, this is a key part of the book because Uh, we find out that the lessons here all end up assisting Flora as the story progresses. So they take her to the library and they tell her, well, we only ever access the first two as the remaining three stories are full of dark visions that only the Holy Sage case are said to be able to process without descending into madness. So initially Flora follows their lead and she reads the first two and then she decides to try the the next one the third one the visitation and um it's at this point though that the queen enters the library and flora forgets about the need to finish reading all of the memories so the queen ends up taking a shine to flora and she allows her to remain an additional day to watch her in what they call holy procession, which is when the queen lays her eggs. And I really, really, really love the description of this. The queen's scent rose high as she went into her birth trance. Her face shone as with a fast, graceful rhythm, she began swinging her magnificent long abdomen from side to side, each time sliding the tip deep within a crib. At the back of the progress, carrying the water, Flora saw the faint point of brightness remaining in the wax where a tiny new egg adhered to the bottom. So during Flora's time with the queen, 
Not only does she sneak away and end up reading the remaining scent memories, which she gets severely scolded for as she passes out after doing so, but during a time when she's alone with the queen, she witnesses the queen going through sudden intense pain and spasms in her abdomen, although it passes very quickly. And the queen tells Flora that she can never speak of what she saw and reassures her that everything's well, the queen's love is strong and that she continues to lay neatly. But as she's talking about how well she's laying, she seems to be trying to convince herself. Hmm, can we say foreshadowing? So eventually, the special attention that Flora is receiving from the Queen begins to eat away at the ladies-in-waiting. And due to their resentment, they rather abruptly kick her back to sanitation. And it's clear here that at first they were playful and kind, having fun with their new lowly Flora pet. But once they see that the Queen values her, they can't stand the fact that Holy Mother would give any attention to such a lowly bee. And they basically say that she's been dismissed. So even though she's hurt, Flora does as she's told and she leaves, but everything that she's seen and experienced stays with her and seems to affect her very deeply. Shortly after her time with the Queen, Flora becomes trapped serving the drones again in their special hall and she learns a little bit more about what it means to be a drone. So she learns about drone congregation areas the mating chase, and other things that are usually kept a secret from the worker bees of this hive. She also learns a little bit more about Sir Linden, the smaller drone that we met earlier, but she's quickly able to make her escape from the drudgery of serving the males, and she heads back to the landing board, which she's been thinking about since her first time there. And just as she arrives, something terrible begins to happen. The foragers are returning deathly sick, covered in a strange pale substance. They've been poisoned and they are quickly killed. Lily 500, the most experienced forager bee who we met earlier, is blamed for transmitting the directions to the poisoned field. Now, she insists that when she went out early in the morning, that the field was clear of pollution and poison and it was healthy and that the first um, nectar she brought back was safe. But the guards don't want to hear it and she's arrested and sentenced to death. Now Flora attends Lily before she is unceremoniously kicked from the hive after having her wings removed, which is considered an extremely dishonourable way of dying. And while she's attending her, Lily transmits all of her knowledge about foraging to Flora through their connected antenna. Now, the night following this, Flora experiences great racking pain in her abdomen and to her great surprise, she soon lays an egg. She is shocked and horrified and she intends to turn herself in to be executed for violating holy law. But when she goes to the nursery with her egg to confess her sin and hopefully have her egg be spared... The teasel on duty is quite old and she mistakes Flora for one of the regular nurse bees and assumes that the queen has lain in her chamber again, which is more foreshadowing of issues with the queen. So all she does is she just directs Flora to place an egg in the crib and Flora does as she's told. The next morning, Flora is given permission to forage due to the knowledge that she received from Lily 500. And although she's told to fly chaotically about, 
She finds that she's able to access this shared knowledge from Lily and she embarks on an incredibly fruitful journey. There's a lot of wonderful descriptions in this passage which cover things like the joy of flight, how flora navigates, how bees see the world, how the flowers call out to them. It's really hard to choose what to highlight but these are two passages that kind of stood out to me. Flora stopped because the sun's warmth sent her blood pumping into the veins and capillaries of her wings. Her latches sprang open. The four gossamer membranes stretched wide and flight tight, triggering her thoracic engine. A power surge filled her body, her chest spread broad and her wings hummed brightness. Determined to prove her worth, Flora began her descent toward a million tiny golden mouths. Each showed a faint ultraviolet line pointing to its sweetness, and these florets, stirred by her wing beats, murmured in pleasurable anticipation. It's just lovely. I love how this author writes. So on this first forage, Flora meets some ants, and she uses the common language of hymenopteres, which I thought was a very clever use of the Latin term for insects as a whole. Anne learns that there's a field that seems like it's full of good pollen and nectar, but it's been poisoned with pesticides. Now, sadly, Flora had already eaten quite a lot, so she flies off from the hive and she's violently ill. And thankfully, she is able to purge her bodies of the poison. So she returns to the dance hall and she performs a dance, a waggle dance, that gives detailed information on exactly where the poisoned field is, and to not be fooled by how the flowers are singing their nectar and pollen songs. Because if you eat of it and bring it back, it will poison the hive. And I absolutely love this description of the dance hall. I loved how the author talks about people, the bees that don't forage, watching the foragers do their dances with kind of awe and respect. And it's just kind of a wonderful moment where Flora kind of loses herself in the waggle dance. And I, I just loved it. Now it's right after this that we learn that Flora's first egg has died. And the reason why is that it was placed in the wrong crib. So it was a drone egg that needs a larger cell. But Flora doesn't understand any of this, that the knowledge of how eggs are developed is not shared with worker bees. So she just put it into the first empty crib that she found, which was a worker cell. And they finally find the drone and he's starving. He's like a little larva and he's starving. And Sister Teasel insisted that even though he hadn't had all the food that he needed, it wasn't too late to turn him into a very healthy male. But the fertility police insisted that he was too different and he had to be destroyed. A nursery worker was blamed for this error. And rumours begin that there's a worker in the hive who is laying and therefore violating holy uh, holy law. Devastated by the loss of her first child, as well as the trouble that she's caused, Flora is actually comforted by Sir Lyndon, who gives her a little bit of the Queen's love, which I kind of read as the passing of the royal pheromone. And this makes Flora feel that she's still loved by the Holy Mother. And so she realises that the crib size is different and that she's going to have to learn how to make wax so that she can build an appropriate crib for her next child. And she already feels heavy with a second egg being produced. So she goes to the chapel of wax and she is taught how to create wax. 
And I really loved this because it's biologically accurate where the bees are secreting these small little sheets or drops of wax from their abdomen and then using their little leggies to mold it into um, cells. So after learning this skill, Flora remembers a place she saw briefly after her birth, which is hidden away in the hive. And so she thinks it will be a safe place where she can um, have her egg. But when she's there, she finds something very odd. Three tall cocoons stood anchored on a thick wax plinth, each one a long and faceted oval, intricately decorated. All bore small round holes in the lower section, but one also had a jagged rip across the top. So what we know as beekeepers is that these are queen cells, but Flora doesn't know that. In fact, she doesn't know anything about how a queen bee is formed. And all she does know is that these old cocoons smell of the sage cased, and when she peeks inside, she sees the faces of the dead sage priestesses. Now, I found this interesting because it seems as though the author is implying that the sage cased are so holy because they're immature queens. But that's really what all worker bees are. They are bees that are stunted reproductively. Now, the Melisae, the sage priestesses, claim to be the closest blood relatives of the Holy Mother. So perhaps what we're meant to assume is that the queen and the sage share a mother and the sage could have been queens if they had hatched before their current queen. But either way, I liked this introduction of the queen cells and I liked how it kind of leads to even more foreshadowing. So anyway, Flora lays her second egg in sight of these dead priestesses. She makes an appropriate crib and she rushes away before her absence can be noted. And then not long after this, we learn what the story of expiration is when the sage priestesses gather all the workers together and they speak of needing to sacrifice for the hive's well-being. Apparently times are still tough, there's not enough food coming in and Flora is racked with guilt for laying her egg and so she offers herself up to be sacrificed. But when she's examined by the priestesses, she still smells of wax and flow and they can't lose a young bee who is so productive and so she is pushed aside. As the older bees offer themselves up or are pushed forward by the crowd, the old sister Teasel from the nursery is one of them and she clutches Flora's antenna in terror and as she does so, Flora's secret about her egg slips between them. Teasel starts crying out that Flora is a betrayer, that she's betrayed the hive, that she's betrayed Holy Mother, but she can't be heard over the melee and Flora kills her as the other bees around her also sacrifice their sisters. Flora then returns to foraging. Um, she gets tricked by a cunning wasp. I do really like the interaction between the bees and the wasps in this book, but I'm not going to describe it because this is long enough. Uh, at this point in the story, they are strongly in a dearth, so there's no more nectar flow. And she is easily led astray by the promise by this wasp that they have food that she could have. Uh, there's a lot of great descriptions in this section of how the weeds cry out desperately to Flora for her touch, how the wasps trick her, how the wasps form their own nest and how Flora escapes. But there's too much to go over. It's just a really great adventure. When Flora manages to escape, there is no time for her to get home. It's too late in the day and she, bees can't fly at night. 
And so she finds a tree with a hollow to rest in, expecting to die because it is said that no bee can survive a night away from the safety of the hive. But it turns out that this hollow in the tree is perfectly located and Flora manages to survive the night and return to her home in the morning only to find that it's being raided. So here is where we learn what the visitation scent memory means. And if you're a beekeeper, you might have guessed it. It is a beekeeper coming to open up the hive and take honey frames. Now in the book, this beekeeper is an old man. And there's actually a section early on about how there's this hive in an orchard and the family uh, are preparing to sell the property because their elderly father who owns it is getting close to passing and um, they just can't decide what to do about the beehive because they're being told that the property will sell better if they get rid of it. So this old man comes out to uh, take honey and by the bees just depiction of him he's not a very good beekeeper he uh really upsets the bees he's clumsy he causes a lot of damage while he's taking out these frames which shouldn't happen if you know what you're doing but again we know this guy is quite ancient and he's just doing the best that he can so for the bees though this is like the end of the freaking world they have no idea what's going on it's absolutely terrifying um and flora sadly learns that when the beekeeper removed his frames he destroyed the area where she had laid her egg and so her second child dies um but the fertility police are now aware that there is a worker laying and the hive starts to go through a period of great unrest and although Flora is racked with guilt. She longs for her lost children. It's really, really sad. And um, there was a, a section that kind of stood out for me where she's dreaming and hoping to produce another egg. As her nectar cured, brave and industrious Flora 717 stood amid her sisters, her mind's eye gazing deep into the dark sky of her body, searching for a new star. So shortly after this loss, Flora comes to the attention once more of a sage priestess and the priestess tells her to go and toil with the sanitation workers, which she does. But then the priestess, unhappy apparently with disobedience, then tells her that she has to go out in the morning and bring back a full load of nectar despite the dearth. And it, it Every bee around her who hears this knows it's an impossible task, but Flora accepts because she is desperately holding on to the hope that she will somehow produce another egg and have a child. So she goes out to do what she's told, but it's a dearth. There is no nectar to be had. She gets what she can, but when she goes to land, the thistle guards on the landing board sadly tell her that they have to obey the sage priestess and her stomach, her nectar crop isn't full. So she's going to be exiled. But the other foragers step forward and give Flora their nectar so that Flora has a full crop. And while this is happening, this is all happening on the landing board. And Flora learns that the priestesses are making offerings of older bees to the spiders that form webs around the hive. And they're doing this because the spiders speak prophecy and will share information about the fate of the hive when they are given bees to eat. 
Now, Flora is outraged by this and witnesses a worker who flings herself into the web for the good of the hive. And Flora is furious and she confronts the spider in a rage. And the spider warns her that winter will come twice, but she also whispers to Flora that Flora will have one more egg. Flora tells the sage priestess about the winter comes twice prophecy, but obviously not about her egg. And tension is starting to build because the bees heard her tell about the winter will come twice and they're already low on honey, particularly because of the visitation. Now they're in a nectar dearth and the bees are getting restless. And again, if you're a beekeeper, in the fall, tension definitely builds in your hives and you can expect to have some kind of pissy bees who could have been absolutely lovely and sweet natured in the spring, but are now agitated and aggressive because they feel the pressing need to bring in more food and have stores ready for winter and this is also a time when hives will steal from other hives which is what we call robbing so I loved this kind of recognition of this period of time and how accurate it was so fellow beekeepers who are familiar with what happens in the fall might know what's coming next in the book and that's the expulsion of the drones so this is a normal thing to see in the fall you'll see these big clumsy drones being pushed out of the hive to die because when resources are low the drones are the first to be sacrificed Um, I always describe drones as like the sperm of the hive so in the spring when times are good and they can make as much sperm as possible and keep them fed and then send them out in the world in the hopes that they will mate, then that's great. But in the fall, when resources are low, the drones have missed their chance. They've missed their chance to breed. They are eating twice as much as their sisters. They're just a waste of resources. So the hive will kill them. Now in the book, um, it's sort of a moment spurred on by the hive mind, which calls the bees together collects the drones at the center of the worker bees and is they're basically told by the hive mind they go into this kind of ritual dance which is about thanking the drones for their attempts at mating but now they have to go but these drones are spoiled and they become rude and aggressive and it seems to trigger something in the worker bees who attack their brothers killing them and even like ripping them to pieces When it's all over and this kind of trance leaves them, they're terrified by what they've done and they just descend into weeping and panic and rending of fur and it's all very dramatic. But then the queen mother arrives and she walks through the bees and she bathes them in her holy love. And as they're entranced by her scent, she tells them a story and it's the story of her mating flight and how all of the worker bees' fathers perished so that they might be born. And she says that each year the queen tells this story and each year the bees awaken from their trance and they have no memory of these secrets that have been shared to them at this time. Now, it's after the queen returns to her chambers that Flora's scent the scent of her secret egg is almost discovered. But her fellow Flora, the other sanitation workers, surround her. And although they can clearly smell her egg, they push their scent to cover it up. Now, a sage is still watching and is suspicious. And so she tells Flora to return with her kin to sanitation and that she's not to forage. And even worse, she tells Flora that once the workers... um 
that surround her have done their job for the day, which is clearing the dead body parts of the drone, that she is to instruct them to fling themselves into the spider's webs. Now, Flora is absolutely horrified, but feels that she can't say no. So she goes to sanitation and she instructs them on what to do. But when she's there, she tells them to basically save themselves and she refuses to instruct them to kill themselves. But while she's there um, in the morgue, because they were bringing body parts in, she finds a pile of dead brood that smells really wrong, even for dead brood. And it's all in different stages, from eggs to tiny little larvae to almost fully emerged bees. And it's all from the case sage. And she also finds Sir Lyndon, the little drone from earlier, who hid in fear and he now begs to be mercifully killed because of his sin of not obeying the hive mind but flora tells him no you're gonna have to find another bee she cannot she can't kill him what she does do is she does tell sister sage about the dead brood and she tells her that it smells wrong and that it's all of the sage kin and the sage priestess tells her that she is wrong and basically threatens to kill her if she speaks of it again yet more foreshadowing So soon it's time for the colony to cluster for winter with their queen and her attendants who will be at the centre. And I really loved the way it was described. The bees stilled their bodies as if in death and the faint molecules of the queen's love still rising from the heart of the cluster joined them together as one being. Freed from their bodies, each bee felt herself travelling the hive, exploring its vastness and its details, both ancient and new, so that she loved its every cell and understood its whole construction, from the landing board to the treasury walls they clung to. I really love this idea that the bees, when clustering, kind of step into their dreams and travel the hives and share memories it's it's really beautifully described and um it's just it's just gorgeous i loved it now when they're clustering the lowly flora are on the very outer edges of the cluster and the cluster is rotating so that each bee will eventually access food but because of where they've been positioned the flora spend most of the winter desperate for food and a lot of them die Now, relatively early on in the cluster, Flora is struggling to sleep. She's almost waking, dreaming of foraging. And at one point she leaves the cluster and she finds Sir Lyndon huddled on the ground, um, preparing to freeze to death. But she's kind of softened to this drone and she takes him to her Flora sisters and they cover him with their scent to conceal him and just accept him as one of them. And so all his rudeness and his swagger is is now gone and he is very grateful for the help and he quickly settles in and falls deep into the cluster dreams but flora is still unable to settle and on a rare warm day she feels the warmth coming through the hive and she goes out to forage with a few of the other foragers and there's some more discoveries that are made during this flight and it's a really fun read at one point she encounters a um carnivorous uh venus flytrap in a uh, in a greenhouse and it's, it's just great but the point is she brings back some nectar and she brings it directly to the queen who recognizes flora and asks her to tell her the fifth story in the library which is the golden leaf 
But a sister sage quickly intervenes and she convinces the queen to fall back into her trance. And it's very interesting how she doesn't want this story to be told. And we don't really know what this story is yet because Flora experienced it as visions, visions of a golden leaf and feelings. So we're not really sure what's going on there. But Flora's instructed that all nectar must be given to a sage from now on. She is not to approach the queen again. And she's rewarded with a drop of honey, which is what I read as a bribe. And sweet Flora, she takes this honey back to her kin and she shares it with all of them, even though she's starving. And they share it with Sir Lyndon, who isn't greedy like he was before and takes just a small portion so that he might share it with the rest of the flora. Now, before the winter's fully over, a mouse finds its way into the hive, which is more indication that this is a bad beekeeper because he didn't put his um, mouse guard on. And it's an old mouse. It gets stung to death and it dies in the hive and they can't remove it. So they seal it with propolis. And this is an important plot point, but I also really liked its inclusion because this is actually something that bee colonies have done before. And people have found like completely entombed mice and other small predators in hives that have overwintered. Now, after this intrusion, Flora, who was very um, involved in defending them against the mouse, returns to the cluster and she discovers something miraculous, that the other Flora, the sanitation workers who are said to not have a voice, can now speak. And they tell her that they rediscovered their voices in the dreaming of the cluster, which I thought was charming and just, I don't know, somehow beautiful. So spring comes, the bees rejoice, but Flora can't help but remember the prophecy that the spider told her that winter will come twice. She's also longing for her promised next egg, but she can't feel any indication that her body is actually making another one. And she also remembers what happened to the drones, even though all her sisters have forgotten and start to rejoice anew when they learn that for every 100 workers, the queen is now laying a drone egg. So Flora is very unnerved. She's uncertain. She feels her age a little bit, but she goes back to foraging. And on one return flight, she learns from a clover which is one of the bees, that there are rumours that all of the new brood are dying and rotting in their cells. And this made me wonder if the author was thinking of foul brood, either European or American, that causes the larva to die and become like gross and sticky and just icky. But after finding this news, the sage priestesses insist that this is a dirty lie and that anyone who speaks of it will be given what's called the kindness which is basically being executed but flora is determined to find the truth and she detects a note of sickness within the hive so focusing on nothing else she follows it until she's finally stopped by six sage priestesses and she realizes where she's been led directly to the queen's chambers and inside it is a horror show a sick queen sits on the ground cradling a dead larva in her arms and trying to feed it and her attendants are deformed from the sickness and unable to speak because their tongues have turned to slime in their mouths. So this is dire times and Flora is racked with guilt that she could have led them to her holy mother. But the um, fertility police and the sage priestesses they take the attendants who are executed immediately and they lead the queen away to the dance hall where they gather the full hive 
and there they have a fresh leaf brought in coated in golden forsythia pollen forsythia forsythia i don't know that lovely yellow flower and this is the golden leaf from the fifth story but only the priestesses flora 717 and the queen are the ones who know what this moment means and it means that the queen will be killed so the queen is executed due to her sickness and the bees kind of descend into chaos until the sage priestesses pull themselves up and tell them that in three days a new princess will rise and she will be from a sage egg as they are the holy kin of the queen. But a teasel points out that a queen cannot rise in three days and clearly the sage have been planning this moment for quite some time. And from this point on in the book the sage are pitted against the teasel And the teasel start to gather in secret to discuss all the unrest in the hive and whether the sage can be trusted. Now, it's this night of total drama that Flora lays her third and final egg in a crib that she makes out of propolis behind the body of the mouse that broke in over winter because she finds that she has aged enough that she can no longer produce wax. Now, on the day that the new queen is supposed to emerge, nothing happens. And the sage tell everyone, oh, it's fine. Don't worry. It's because of the weather, claiming it will be just a few more days. But the teasel continue to be mutinous. And soon we learn that they are secretly raising their own queen. The sage are furious. They insist that they are the only ones by holy law who can raise a princess. And they command everyone to go through the hive and look for queen cells. So fearing discovery, Flora rushes to be with her egg in its hidden chamber, but a sage follows her. Now, this is the point in the book where all biology is thrown aside. So I'll warn you of that now, because we learn during this confrontation between the priestess and Flora 717 that this egg that she has laid is female, which is completely impossible. But it's important thematically for this story because it's perfectly timed so that Flora's female child is set to emerge when the sage and the teasel queens do. So the sage priestess is furious and she attempts to kill Flora's child and so Flora 717 is forced to kill her. Uh, But the body of the sage is too big, she can't drag it through the hive with everyone looking for uh, queen cells so she has to break the body into pieces to be disposed of and she disposes of it in a section behind this mummified mouse that didn't get fully repaired after it chewed its way through. And as she's pulling the body parts, she comes across Sir Lyndon, who assists her in the disposal and doesn't ask her any questions. He just helps her because he's grateful for her keeping him alive through winter. Flora then realises that she can't keep her child where she is and that her child needs to be sealed, like capping the cell for the final stage of growth and so she picks her up and she uses the sanitation bee pathways to run to the morgue and her kin see her with this child but say nothing they don't question her and flora basically pulls down a wax wall and uses it to make a large crib that she caps so that her child may survive Now we learn that the hive is basically deteriorating without a queen. And this is much how it is in a real hive. Um, We learn that because the brood was sick, there's almost no brood left. And without a queen or brood, honeybees do become ornery and they're tough to work with. In much the same way, Flora's hive is almost completely broodless and factions are fighting 
are they team sage or team teasel do they trust the sage or do they believe that the teasel are right and the sage are untrustworthy and just as things are really heating up between the two factions a great piping sound and fills the hive and a strange vibration shakes the comb and the sage princess the virgin queen has emerged but so has the teasel and the two mighty virgin queens come together and fight fiercely and eventually the sage manages to kill her rival but just as the hive is beginning to proclaim her the new queen the piping noise rings out again and who should emerge but flora's daughter From the dark dormitory walked a huge black princess with russet fur, long quivering antennae, a tiny waist, and the strong hooks and limbs of her mother, Flora 717. I am the last princess, her low voice carried, and I have already wet my dagger with the blood of all others but one. And so the sage and the flora fight, uh, the sage princess and the flora princess fight, and just as Flora's child is, ima- is about to make the killing blow, she's already wounded Sage and she's about to basically chop Sage's head off. She pauses and she announces that the hive is being invaded by wasps. And as the hive's attention is no longer diverted by the fighting, they realize that a huge number of wasps is descending upon the landing board. Now, the sage princess, who's still alive, but very badly wounded, is dragged to safety by her supporters, who basically say, we don't care what you say about the wasps, we have to protect the sage princess. Whereas Flora and her daughter rally their own supporters, and they go to see what can be done to protect the hive. But it's, pr- it's very quickly uh, clear that there's no chance of survival. Wasps from all different nests have come together, sensing the weakness of this hive, and they're coming to take all of the honey and resources and kill all of the bees. So Flora tells her child and their supporters that their only chance of survival is to leave the hive behind, and so they leave in a great swarm of about half of the population of the hive, which, if you're a beekeeper, you know is what a real swarm does. Although a real swarm, it's always the old queen that leaves. In this case, we're dealing with, you know, the old queen being dead. And I already said that we've kind of set biology aside for a moment. So leading up to this moment of swarming, there have been indications that Flora 717 is is getting old. Um, there are, and that she's suffered from her time of foraging. So her wings are kind of ragged, her abdomen is scarred. She had to use propolis for her daughter's crib because she couldn't make wax anymore. And she really begins to feel her age as they flee from their dying hive. But everyone's looking to her for help because the majority of her supporters are the flora, the sanitation workers, and some of the thistle and some of the teasel. And they're looking to her who has produced this miraculous strong princess. And she remembers that hollow tree that sheltered her when she was forced to spend a night away from her hive. And so she performs one more dance and she dances the direction to the whole swarm and all who can dance take it up and they share the information and they head towards the tree. Now, as they fly to their new home, Flora's daughter, who is kind of described as aging rapidly, like she doesn't have a long childhood basically, she becomes a mature female quickly, realizes that she can never be queen until she has mated. And who should be with them but Sir Lyndon? And she chooses him 
And she says that she sees him as the very best because her mother loves him. And so the two of them mate, which obviously kills Sir Lyndon, but this is everything that he's wanted. He didn't get a chance his first year. This is his last chance. There's a beautiful description of him seeming to grow young again and then chasing the princess, catching her mating and dying. Now, again... From a beekeeper's point of view, this actually isn't good because Sir Lyndon and Flora are directly related through their mother. So it's a little kind of inbreeding-y. But I think we're supposed to assume that, you know, this is her first mating to make her queen, but she's going to go out again and have more mating flights because that's what bees do. But anyway, we've suspended disbelief about biology and everything because we're in the story now. And it's, it is a beautiful story. And I can't, I can't hold it against the author for making the choices that she did. So now Flora's daughter is truly a queen bee and she leads her swarm with renewed confidence. But Flora is old and she's tired and she falls behind. Her strength is failing rapidly. And it's then that she sees Lily 500 flying beside her with a smile. And Flora is filled with a sense of peace. She eventually falls to the forest floor and watches as the scout bees are sent ahead to ensure the safety of their new hive. And then the new queen enters with everyone trooping in behind her. And Flora celebrates her child's reign, surrounded by the Flora kin. It's it's a whole new world and position for the Flora. And she celebrates the safety of the hive. And finally, she can rest. And what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to read you the last um, paragraphs from this chapter. There's like a uh, an after section about the beekeeper's family coming out to the hive and finding it empty. So it, it was defeated by the wasps and they see it as a positive thing. They believe that when their father passed away, the bees went with him. And so for them, it is a positive moment. Um, but what I'd like to read is uh, these last couple of paragraphs that I read and ended up ugly crying. And every time I read them, I kind of get a bit choked up. I'm going to try really hard to get through this. Um, So these are the last paragraphs. I just find them super moving and I, I really wanted to share them with all of you. The dark and glorious princess flew down and settled on a branch. While scouts went in to check the tree, Thousands of bees hovered around her while they waited, humming the holy cord. Some settled beside her and began to lick the sperm from her body, and the strong scent of the kin of Flora, mingled with the sweetness of the kin of Linden, floated up through the leaves of the forest. The scouts re-emerged and began to lay their homecoming marker on the lip of the hole in the tree. The bees cried out in joy to the forest and the sky. Long live the queen, long live the queen. Again and again they cheered and Flora wanted to join with it, but all she could do was gaze on the newly crowned queen, her heart filled with love. She watched the new Flora ladies-in-waiting kiss and lick her and then they escorted her into her new home. A new devotion drifted through the forest, the scent of a wild, dark young queen, strong and fertile. The sound of sisters rejoicing stirred the leaves and drew nectar from the flowers. Bees streamed down from the bright air into the dark fissure in the beech tree. 
Flora could no longer move, but she smelled speedwell and bluebells and cyclamen and felt the cool, smooth leaves of aconite holding her body. She wrapped herself in the rich perfume of the forest floor and watched until the last bee flew into the tree. Then she rested. And that's it. <clears throat> I don't know why I get so choked up when I read that. I really seriously ugly cried at the end of this book. I was so moved by it. Um, I wouldn't say it's similar in writing style, but I think in terms of how she imagines things, this author kind of reminded me a little bit of Juliet Marillia and Robin McKinley, if any of you are fans of those books. And part of what I love about those authors is they share fairy tales and fantasies in a way that is magical and earthy and somehow realistic and believable and they're the kind of books that I read when I want to feel like I'm being wrapped in a hug but it's also a wonderful story and some of those books absolutely destroy me so I don't know if any of you have ever read Robin McKinley's Deerskin which is a retelling of the donkey skin myth which is a very dark myth and um, it's basically one of those books where if you have any experience with trauma, there are parts of this book that are going to be hard to get through, but it just is such a beautiful story with such a strong, powerful message that um, it just kills me every time. I absolutely love it. I really need to reread it. It's also about um, the bond between the heroine and her dogs who are um, clearly based on staghounds, which is like a sight hound bred with um, some kind of other breed. So they kind of look like either a whippet or a greyhound, but with like long silky fur, almost like a borzoi. And so of course that appeals to me because I love my dog so much and feel like they are my biggest supporters and um, a huge part of what makes my life feel, uh, filled with love and just feel fulfilled. So Yes. Okay. Whew. That is my review of the bees. Um, thank you for sticking with me. I know it took a while and um, I hope that you'll give this a read. Even if you listen to everything and you, you know, heard these spoilers and you've read, you now know sections of the book. It's so worth the read and it's just, it's so beautiful and I just love it. And if you keep bees, there's so much in it that I feel captures that magic of biology that I've talked about before in a way that I never would have imagined doing myself and so it's just wonderful I'm definitely going to reread it I know that um and I just highly recommend it so as always thank you so much for listening um you know where to find me I'm on Twitter and Tumblr I'm on Instagram and Facebook and you can always email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com because I love to hear from you about anything whether it's bees or chickens or how you're getting along with this whole pandemic mess so next episode I'm going to be back with more hive news that's going to be kind of the standard now that we're going into the time of year where I actually get to be with my bees and I'm also going to do more book reviews so the plan unless anything changes is to start reading Thomas Seeley's The Lives of Bees which I've mentioned previously and I might be breaking this down by chapter or by a couple of chapters because it's primarily a scientific book so it can be pretty technical and detailed. So let's see how far we get because 
I haven't even started it yet, but that's my plan for the rest of this week. So I really hope that you guys are staying safe and that you're staying healthy and you're staying self-isolated because we have to get through this as a community. It's the only way. And I know a lot of you listening are doing everything that you can to keep your friends, your families and your larger community safe. And I really appreciate that so much. Thank you for thinking about others and thank you for sticking with me and listening and, um, you know, liking me on the social medias and getting in touch because I love to hear from you all. As always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Take care, guys. Until next time.